Okay, uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, today's guest is uh, someone that I've kind of known for a, a little while and really admired her work and was psyched when I saw her on the list of guests. Uh, Lori Siegel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so you, you've got a new book out that, that I've been really reading and enjoying called Special Characters, My Adventures with Tex Titans and Misfits. Um, but but you have a really impressive kind of background in covering tech and, and understanding that world. Uh, and I've been enjoying kind of reading it in the book. Um, if you don't mind, give the listeners like two minutes on kind of how you go from, you know, this kid in Atlanta who doesn't really fit in to, to you, right, to being not, you know, yeah, to, to you. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I think that's why I always kind of like the misfits. I grew up uh, the only one of the only Jewish girls at a very Christian conservative Southern school. Um, and I had uh, I had this column of my school newspaper. I always I always loved to write. And I, it was called Spotlight. And I used to just like and it's where you could talk about it. You could spotlight any different type of person at the school. And I would spotlight the weirdest people. And I say that in the nicest way. I was always just um, attracted to people that folks kind of didn't look at or thought were strange. And I loved telling their stories and kind of finding. And, and the they didn't truth. have to be part of the school. It's not like you're one of your grandparents or something. One of the people that you did it. With. Yeah, I got, I, I interviewed, I interviewed <laughs> yeah. like my grandfather, like fought in the war. I interviewed, um, the librarian that everyone used to kind of make fun of behind her back. Like I just, like, I loved, I loved finding the unknown stories. And I think that translated, um, I got an internship. I mean, God, I could go into a long story, but I had a pretty bad experience writing for a women's magazine, um, in, in college where, um, they asked me to go undercover at a purity ball, um, which is where women go devote their virginity to their father. And what percentage of those women, when they do that, do you think are actually virgins? Well, honestly, I mean, the interesting thing is so many of them were really young. So my whole thing was like, these women don't even know what their sexuality is yet. So like, it's super weird to be signing a pledge to say like, I'm going to be a virgin, like giving my sexuality to my father till I'm married. But by the way, this is where I knew I wanted to be a journalist because I thought it was like the coolest, most interesting thing ever. Um, and then I remember I was, I wrote this whole think piece on exactly what I just said to you. And, um, the editor of, of, um, Glamour, the women's magazine called me and she was like, Lori, are you a virgin? And literally I was, I mean, not to give too much information, but I was super awkward <laughs> and, and, uh, and high school, I was kind of a misfit and by college, like had never had a boyfriend. And so I like, ha I, what ended up coming out, she wanted me to write a very personal, um, narrative about, about being a virgin. And I just couldn't even do it. It was so humiliating. They basically wrote the article. I had like a national declaration of my virginity. It was horrible. I'm so the, the embarrassed. Kyra, Lori Siegel, virgin. Yeah. I mean, and then I went abroad. I like fled to go to London. I fled to go abroad as the news, as the magazine was coming out. And all of a sudden <laughs> it came out internationally. So I actually had an international declaration of my virginity, which I was like, this is going to ensure that I'm going to be a virgin forever. <laughs> but it was super embarrassing. And I was like, I'm getting a job at CNN. Like, this is going to happen. Um, ended up getting an internship at CNN. I worked in the breaking news desk for a while. And then I got... Well, so let, let me just stop you there in the sense that you, and the book does a great job of telling the story, but you really figured out how to make yourself kind of relevant, essential, and kind of go, went from an intern to you know a, yeah. a high-level employee. For the people who are listening to this who are trying to get their foot in the door or whatever it is in the media business, like, what should they know? What did you do right? I mean, my God, I was so scrappy. Like, anytime a producer came to me and said, hey, Lori, we're going to need you to do this, um, 
I, even if I had no idea how to do it, I would just say yes. And then I would figure it out. And I would ask so many questions. Like I remember, um, you know, oh God, one of my (laughs) moments was I covered, um, Bernie Madoff and, and his trial when he swindled, you know, all of New York's finest out of millions. Um, I was there covering the event. And by the way, I was there as like the low, like a lowly news assistant who like basically held a spot in line for the reporter. And I remember, um, you can't have phones inside. So there's always a problem when like the, the verdict comes in that, you know, you have to run outside to get to the camera and I had saved a spot for Alan Chernoff, who's one of the reporters at the time. And then I got in and of course there was no room in the, the main courtroom, but they had a spillover room. And I realized there was a payphone nearby and I could hear the verdict coming in. And so instead of like having to run outside and wait and not have it in real time, I, ca- I used the payphone to call the whole CNN newsroom so I could repeat it in real time so we could have it um, really quickly, which was interesting. And of course, like a security guard came over to me during and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, thanks mom. You know, it was really funny, but it was little, like it was hacks. Like I just had all these hacks for the newsroom. Um, and then one of the biggest things I would say is like, I used a job as a landing spot for a job I actually wanted. You know, I, I, and I was curious. I met, I used to sit in an edit bay with an editor named Ross and watch him piece together stories. And I made all these relationships when I was, cause I had a seat, not at the table, but kind of like around the table, you know? Yeah. And then, so, so you're there and then how do you pivot into or, or become sort of uh, an expert in tech and kind yeah. of one of the people who's sort of bringing this whole revolution to light? Yeah. You know, it was 2009, 2010. I had finally, um, I had finally gotten a full time cause I was freelance and I finally got a full-time job and it was at this unit called business updates, which I mean, not to be too self-deprecating, but business updates, which doesn't exist anymore. So I can say this, it was like the bad wedding table. Like no one wanted to be at business updates and when you were like done with like, it was about right. It was writing about the market. I, I was a production assistant who was writing about the market for anchors, which by the way, like did not know enough about to be writing about, but I would call up like hedge fund managers and be like, how would you explain this concept to normal people? You know? And, um, and so that's what I was doing, but I was done every day at 4 PM. Um, and all of a sudden it was, it was New York, 20, 2009, 2010. And there was this really cool scene bubbling up of entrepreneurs. And, you know, the iPhone had come out, we were coming out of the recession, the app store had launched and, and there was all these, there was this creative, like this creative moment happening and it was happening in San Francisco, but it was also happening in New York. Um, and so in my free time, I would go to like Tom and Jerry's downtown, uh, which is a, a bar and like meet up with entrepreneurs and hear different ideas. And I just really, and then I would start incorporating those ideas into some of the business update segments. Um, and then in my free time, I would, um, I would go, I went to the head of CNN money and I was like, let me just do this on the side. And, and so I would start one of my, my first on-camera interview was Sam Altman, who is now this, you know, this kind of big figure in Silicon Valley with OpenAI, and he was the president of Y Combinator. But at the time, he had a, a company called Looped. And I remember um, on the side, I, I put him on camera, convinced people that he was going to be somebody. And, and it was just kind of hacks like that. And finally, I got a full-time job at CNN Money. Um, I created my own job position. I literally wrote it up on a piece of paper um, and handed it to, to them and said, we need someone who can be a multi-platform reporter covering startups and covering emerging technology. And, and at first, a lot of people didn't take it seriously. But all of a sudden, you know, when I my stuff started doing pretty well and 
And these companies started getting bigger and more buzzy. And so because I had interviewed a lot of these people, and by the way, most of the time they had no idea I was a production assistant and I was so low (laughs) on the totem pole, like they had no clue. Um, You know, I was the one with the kind of insight to all of them and to also what was really happening. And so, I mean, I I would argue you did, as as someone who's kind of watched your career and read your book, whatever else, um, two things, right? One that you mentioned, which was you kept coming up with innovative hacks and ways to do things in a, in a new way, get ahead, impress your bosses. And, you know, mm-hmm. people notice that, right? You know, right. I, I noticed when my employees do that. The other thing you did um, is the, to me at least, the more obvious way to cover tech would just be like, okay, here is this new technology and here's how it was invented and here's what it means for this industry. Um, but it's pretty dry. And you kind of flipped the script completely and yeah. just went all in on these people as, as human beings yeah. uh, who are now like both, you know, so anti-heroes and heroes, but they're, they're the biggest people we have in society now. What what made you decide to do that? And how, what was the reaction to CNN when you explained that you were going to cover this in a totally different way? Well, you know, it's so funny that you noticed that, right? I think, um, first of all, I'm not like a tech person. I never was like a tech first person. I mean, I'm surprised I haven't like ruined this microphone that I'm speaking to you on. I always like break technology. But I think for me, because I was always so interested and humans. And the narrative I liked around tech was it was a little punk rock back in the day, you know? Yep. And yep. Um, I I think for me, that was, I liked the misfit aspect of it. That's why I got into it. And then you meet these people and it wasn't, what made my stuff different was I wasn't just like, this is the hot new app. And, and I did do, I mean, a lot of that at first, but it was very much like, okay, you know, how is this going to impact our mental health and our children? And who are the people um, behind it and why do they do what they do? I mean, God, I remember interviewing Ev Williams, um, you know, years, years ago and having him open up about leaving, um, leaving Twitter and how he was fired and, and hearing him really open up about it. And I loved always being able, I don't want to say crack people because I think that sounds too simplistic, but the same way I did with Spotlight back in, in, um, you know, in high school, I really loved understanding the humans behind the products, because if you can't understand the humans behind the products, you can't understand why the products impact humanity in a certain way. Um, And so I I think that was always my unique approach. And that was a little bit of my superpower, which I don't think people realized until later when tech became humanity, right? Tech impacted everything from democracy to the way we find love to our mental health and our children. So, you know, I think um, it was just a love and a curiosity of people. Um, and yeah. then, you know, looking at it, I wasn't just doing the cool tech founders and this and that. I started being really interested in like the impact of the algorithms, right? Like I did stories on pimps recruiting women on Facebook on, on non-consensual pornography, revenge porn, and, and how this wasn't just a new type of harassment. This was about the internet being utilized for power and control, um, against women. And so I, I felt like tech became, every part of me and every part of what I did. Yeah. And I think by focusing on the founders, especially as, as people, you realize and capture something that I think often gets missed, which is they're human beings. So whatever product they're creating, whatever the platform is, whatever the app is, it's going to kind of reflect them, and which includes their hopes, their dreams, their anxieties, their depressions, their fears, all of that, right? And that's all ends up being part of the product that you're using in, in one form or another. That's right. And, and I think people forget that. 
right? People forget that there are real humans behind this. But I think for me, I didn't forget that because I saw them when they were real humans, you know, like I was, I, I always joke, I don't know if I should say this, but I always joke that I was like the pot of television interviews. I was like the gateway into TV because I interviewed so many of these young people, like young entrepreneurs when they could like barely form a sentence when they were going on, on camera for the first time. And so I saw them as human. I didn't see them as like, these big founders. I saw them as these people that I also grew up with. Um, and, and so I think that really did help. And, I, and I've always believed in asking people those personal questions. If you ever see an interview I do, like it'll have a certain arc. It'll be, um, you know, something that's a little bit warmer and comfortable. It'll go into the hard questions. And at the end, I'll always ask those personal questions. And they always end up being the most interesting questions, I think. So one of the kind of early get, big gets that you had was was a young founder named Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. Um, had you get him? And then if, if I'd asked you right after the interview, like, OK, how are things going to turn out for this guy? How much of what happened would you have predicted? Um, you know, Mark was interesting because I think uh, Zuckerberg, like he hadn't done a lot of press and he didn't have to do a lot of press in Facebook's good years. Right. He did something like a bazillion years ago. I, I forget who it was with, but then he hadn't done press in like five years. And, and by 2017, a lot of weird things were beginning to happen um, and the tide was beginning to turn against big tech. And, and we were beginning to learn things about Facebook and its impact, although it hadn't really fully blown up yet. And I remember that my first time interviewing him, Facebook had changed their, um, their motto or their, um, in the same way, like Google was don't be evil. And then they changed it. Facebook changed, um, changed their line. It was very subtle, but they decided they wanted to do press. And, And I had covered Facebook through all the, like the small things, right? When Facebook even like turned to start doing mobile. I did a thing on that. So I had been at the company for their 10 year anniversary interviewing Chris Cox. Like I had just interviewed all the people along the way. And so it was, um, you know, we, I ended up interviewing him about that, but you know, caveat, it was a very short interview. We were standing the whole time. It was kind of awkward. Like there's a lot of hitting like the, the talking points and yeah. you know, I mean, he's, he's awkward too. So yeah, it wasn't, and it, and it, it, it was his first on camera thing in so long. And so God, I just remember thinking, you know, like, this is crazy. Like, he hasn't had to do that. He would talk through Facebook to folks. And now, all of a sudden, as it's getting a lot more high pressure, like, they've got to put him out more. And so then the other big one was um, Cambridge Analytica and the scandal that I think um, really put into focus the issues with data and privacy and what what on earth is this company uh, doing with our, our data. And and, you know, Mark was like nowhere to be seen um, and Cheryl was nowhere to be seen. This was like three or four days after the scandal. And it just like was getting even worse. I think a lot of times Facebook will try to see if like if something's going to get worse or if it's going to blow over b- before they decide to put someone out there. So it was only getting worse. Like it was snowballing. And and I think everybody was trying to ask for Mark or Cheryl Sandberg to, to speak out. Um, and I had gotten this information um, about inside the company, how people were beginning to turn on Mark and Cheryl because they're like, you need to say something. Yeah. And I remember going on air um, to, to kind of reveal this information. And this is kind of like a, a little bit of the death by a thousand cuts sexism, which is a theme in the in the book. But, you know, they had started putting me on, they put me on with, um, I won't say his name, but a, a male reporter who like having recently discovered social media would get him on air more, was talking quite a bit about social media. And had no sources inside or anything like that. And he was just like pontificating on air the whole time. And I barely had a second to speak when they came to me because you only get like two minutes in a television se- a segment. Right. And even though I had like real information about what was happening inside the company, and I just remember 
getting off set and being like, you know what? Like I'm going to book Mark, you know, like I should book Mark. Like there's no reason he shouldn't speak with me because he spoke with me before and he hasn't done camera on anything on camera with anyone else. And this is a a really tough moment for the company. So he's going to want to speak to someone he's spoken to. And like, and it just happens to be that I'm probably the only one he spoke to on camera (laughs) in a long time. Do you think that's what it like something obviously set you up different from everyone else. Well, do you think it was that, that he knew you and felt a little comfortable? Yeah, I think it was that. And and so I messaged him on Facebook. We have like a hundred friends in common. And so I ended up messaging him on Facebook and saying, you know, I think you should speak You have a responsibility as a leader to speak and you want to speak with the right person. And I, I sent him this message and I saw that he saw it. <laughs> then I talked to his PR person and it was pretty dramatic. Like if you read the chapter in the book, it's called all hell breaks loose, yeah. but um, there was like a winter storm coming in. So there were only a few flights getting out and they were all stopping. And so I was, you know, on the phone with them being like, you got to let me know if I have the interview, like I got to get on a plane and all this stuff. And, and so I, I ended up, um, they ended up saying yes. And what I, what I think it was, to, to be honest with you, was yes, I think it was, this was arguably the most uncomfortable moment for the company to, to date. Um, and he, and I'm assuming they wanted him and he probably wanted to speak to someone he's actually spoken to before. Um, and who's also has a deep knowledge of tech who isn't just going to kind of come in and try to make a name for themselves or just do the big anchor type thing where you just ask simplistic questions. Um, I always did look at the nuance in technology. And so I'm not coming at it from a, you know, overly simplified or overly, you know, whatever it was point of view. And so um, I'm, I think that was, was really helpful. And I just remember going in that day and it was so weird because like everything felt so small you know, and it was such a big thing. And we just had like two tiny, two little cameras. Um, and we, and we interviewed him and it was one of the, like, right when I started the interview, he stopped, um, and was like, I have to go. And he left and I was like, well, this is going to be problematic because we have a countdown clock for CNN going. And they, his PR people came back, they were like, the room's not cold enough. And like, I do know for a fact, he really likes a cold room. (laughs) And so we went into another room that was like freezing and we, we started the interview. Um, and, but it was a big interview because it was the first time he kind of admitted that, that they were, that they were, could be regulated. And, and it was a big moment, I think for, for the company, but also for tech in general, it was this moment that everyone cared, like what on earth were they doing with our data? Like my mom cared she's not on Facebook, you know? Right. So how do you, so, I mean, they're such a fascinating company in that, when you look at the kind of work they've done over the last five to 10 years in PR and politics and regulatory, it's sort of remarkably bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost impressive that they've done the impossible and they've kind of united the two parties against them, right? right. The only thing Democrats <laughs> yeah. agree on is they hate Facebook. But at the same time, they've also some things that are just remarkable, right? I mean, they have more followers than Christianity. He saw Instagram before everyone else. He saw WhatsApp yeah. before everyone else. He's out there in the metaverse, you know, before everyone else. Mm-hmm. So how do they, how are they so good at some things and so bad at others? Well, here's how I would put it, right? Like say what you will about, about Mark Zuckerberg. Like he's a really brilliant product guy. I mean, you forget, like he bought Instagram for a billion dollars, like at, during the quiet period when they were going, when Facebook was going public and, everyone thought he was insane, right? Like 
everyone thought he was insane to do that. And they thought a billion dollars for a company. Oh my God. But what he really saw was that Facebook had a problem with mobile and that this was going to be a very valuable mobile company. He had the foresight for that. He had the foresight for, um, for WhatsApp, right? Even though they paid like what, like 21, 22 billion. I don't remember, but like a lot of money. And so even though Facebook, I mean, they might not be growing in users as quickly as whatever, as they used to like, um, and their, their demo might be aging. Like they still have Instagram, they have WhatsApp and, and I actually think his play on the metaverse, whether or not um, it plays out the way they want it to, I think that they didn't have much of a choice but to take a big swing, right? Um, and I'm a very strong believer, I mean, in the future of Web3 and, and how this is going to play out in some kind of metaverse environment of like our children growing up in these more immersive worlds. Um, you know, and, and so he's a really smart product guy. Now, the thing I would say about Facebook, having uh, looked at it all these years, is the thing that Facebook continues to get wrong um, is this thing called humanity and like the, some of the right. basic stuff around humanity. And so, you know, I think what I did notice from looking at the company for long periods of time and through multiple shifts is like there's a very small group, I feel like, around Mark. Um, and and there is, and it's a little bit insulated. Um, and so I think that was, that's hard. And, and that gets in the way sometimes of really understanding. I think it wasn't diverse enough early on. I think if you had different types of folks in, you could have anticipated the the bad use cases of, of the platform. And so I think they did. And then I think their PR strategy, um, you know, throughout the years has been, okay, we don't really have to, to speak until like we do have to speak. And is this really a thing um, when it comes to a crisis? So, um, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at Mark not to analyze their PR strategy now. Um, he's not doing as much mainstream media. He's doing podcasts. He's doing kind of like alt folks that he wants to be on with. He's just kind of like picking and choosing, um, you know. But but another thing is for so long, no matter how how much drama Facebook kind of stirred up, like, they still, their stock is doing incredibly well, right? So, yeah. um, you know, but I do think this is going to be a weird time for the company as all of these new uh, industries seem to be emerging in a new era of the internet and Facebook is the man now. Right, right. They're, they're no, no longer moving fast and breaking things. They, yeah. they, they, they own the things now. So right. one of the things I really thought you captured so well in the book was kind of that feeling of enthusiasm and excitement around tech in the early 2010s. I remember, you yeah. know, when I started with Uber, like it was like, wow, this is so incredible. Um, and obviously that has changed a lot to the point where like when I was running the campaigns to legalize Uber around the U.S., we were like this cool, shiny thing that everybody kind of wanted to be part yeah. of, whereas now there's a show on Showtime about how terrible they are, yeah. right? Um, what was the turning, and I don't, don't think that they're that terrible, but what was the turning point where we went from just loving kind of tech and loving Facebook and yeah. Google and Uber and all this stuff to now being like incredibly skeptical? Yeah, I mean, and there was a turning point, right? I mean, like speaking of Uber, it's like there's a scene in the book where I was interviewing um, Travis Kalanick, former CEO. And and I think this was a turning point for me that I actually noticed because I was the one kind of covering a lot of these companies. And my God, it was so exciting. I mean, I write about that. It was like such an incredible moment in time, you know, but I remember interviewing Travis um, and and he had come in to talk about a partnership with American Express. And, and during that interview, he... Um, he said to me, I said to him, like they, they were, Uber was having some issues at the time with women's safety in their cars. I think Uber was growing so quickly and they hadn't fully gotten control over this. And, and it was like that month, like two women had been attacked or something in Ubers. Yeah. So I asked him about it and he literally like started taking off his mic. 
and saying, I didn't know this was that kind of interview. And, and I think for me, I mean, as this company became like a multi-billion dollar company, um, for me, it was kind of an eye-opening experience of like, okay, you don't get to just kind of, you don't get to just stand behind the idea that you're changing the world, right? Like that comes with a lot of complications. And, and if there's a certain arrogance about not wanting to answer the hard questions that come along with connectivity or, you know, <laughs> disruption, then we're going to run into some, some real problems. So I think for me, that's when I started noticing it. Um, and not all founders were like that, but I certainly did see a certain, um, a certain, you know, pushback. Now, I think really, um, when I really started seeing a lot of it, it was around the election, right? And with what we learned about Facebook and um, disinformation and Russia and, you know, these and these bots with various motives. And, and I think that was um, was a real turning point for technology. I remember I was in Lisbon at Web Summit and when Trump was elected and I remember walking by a couple entrepreneurs and someone whispered, did we do this? You yeah. know, and I, like, I, I, yeah, I was there, too. And I was booked uh, for that the morning after the election to do some talk like in the big arena with some guy from the Guardian, you know, explain yeah. or explain how Hillary won, whatever, you know, it seemed like okay, no problem. <laughs> and then, you know, I didn't sleep the whole night because we're like, yeah. fuck, what are we going to do? And right. then I had to get there. And then this guy is yelling at me and I'm like, I didn't vote for him, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I, mean, so, I love that you were there. You remember it was this palpable yeah. feeling that technology was responsible to some degree, like, and whether or not you want to make that argument, I think that there, that I was sitting in that arena. God, I remember because I interviewed Dave McClure. This is like a scene in the book, um, the, the morning or the day after, right? And and the the panel was like, like the impact of ego or something in tech. And like Dave just went on like a tangent and he got up and he was screaming at the audience. And I just like, all of it was so messy. And, and it just like, and I got pick up everywhere about like, I think the best headline for my panel was Silicon Valley is like losing its collective shit about the election. Like, but, but I do think that people lost their patience when that happened and people really started questioning the impact of technology on democracy. And then later, I think, you know, I was covering a lot of these things, to be honest, before they they happened. I remember doing a whole thing on mental health and, and technology and addiction and how these products could be coded in a certain way. And then I think that that really kind of came out years later. And, you know, I'm just going to go on a small tangent. Like, I think the social uh, dilemma is an interesting thing for that Netflix did. Um, you know, where I think a lot of people in the, in the real world and like mainstream got to see about like technology and addiction and how they coded these products. You know, what's kind of annoying, if I'm being completely honest, is like, A, none of those people would go on camera years before when we asked them those questions. And it's nice that they're all talking now. But like we've been asking those questions for a really long time. Was there anyone that you wrote about in the book that now you're like kind of anxious that you don't want to run into them at an airport or a cocktail party or anything like that? I mean, I'd probably not want to run into Travis, truthfully, because, <laughs> you know, I, I talk about that scene. And also, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean no, uh, for whatever it's worth, as, as someone who still deals with Travis, uh -huh. there's been so many scenes since then. Right. That it, it may have been a, a, just a washed away. <laughs> right. That, exactly. Exactly. And then I'll, I mean, I'll be honest, like I, I put my personal life in the book, too. So, right. Um, you know, there's like maybe an ex-boyfriend I would really not want to run into after this. <laughs> so I think maybe, maybe those would be my two. I would really, I would really say I'd probably not want to like share a drink with or go. Fair enough. I think with. the Travis part would probably be fine. Good. Probably, okay. Um, I can't speak for the ex-boyfriend, but so <laughs> the, the, the final thing I wanted to cover is you've 
talked a lot and kind of the theme throughout your career, your book, is sort of bringing humanity to tech and bringing humanity to sort of media coverage in general, which should be obvious in some ways, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, you found the dot, dot, dot media. Um, what's the goal and kind of what, were you, what, what needs, how are you going to change this industry? Um, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, I launched dot, dot, dot right in time for uh, the pandemic, which was brilliant timing, as, as you can imagine. Um, and, and we were operating for a while as a production company. So we have shows in development. We did a podcast called First Contact. This book is actually a product of the company. And so it was this idea of really humanizing tech and doing those types of stories and putting those narratives out there. But to be honest with you, that didn't feel big enough for me. Like I didn't, I didn't quit my fancy job to create a production company. Not that there's anything wrong with a production company. It just, I wanted to create, um, I wanted to create a network. I wanted to create a platform. So it's, it was interesting. Um, just in the last three months, we've launched D3, which is uh, essentially a network to cover um, Web3 and help mm -hmm. onboard yep. mainstream folks into Web3. And so. It's very much doing the thing I did back in 2009, but with this new era of the internet, like this idea of crypto and the metaverse and NFTs and all these things that only certain people are able to really access right now. You yeah. know, how do we really build out a whole platform? So if you look at like on one side, there's the New York Times, there's the Atlantic, and everyone's covering this as a beat. And then on the other side, there's Decrypt and there's The Block and it's super inside baseball. And so we really want to be this all-encompassing blank space, right, where I think there's a huge opportunity um, for us to come in and for us to do premium video. We want to build, um, we've been talking to folks about building broadcast centers and these different meta, uh, metaverse type experiences, like, you know, being a full service, we'll, we'll be, we'll have content anywhere there's um, an outlet for content. But I, I think that's really what's exciting to me. Our first interview was with um, the CEO of Yuga Labs, which is the company behind Board Ape Yacht Club, which is one of the most valuable NFT projects, if not the most valuable yep. NFT projects. And my yep. whole thing is like, how do I translate how Web3 is going to impact everything from democracy, the way you love, the way you shop, like all the things I did on Web2 and how do we get more people involved and, and not repeat the same mistakes? Yep. Um, so we're in the process of building that. And it's, I mean, it's super rewarding. And what's really interesting um, and it's a little inside baseball, but I think about what does a modern day media network look like, right? Like if I were building CNN today, how would I build it? And then I was like, let's apply Web3 principles. Like we still don't know exactly where we're going to net out with Web3. It's kind of like Web1 with the dot-com boom where there was a lot of bullshit. And then you really kind of got something that shaped the internet. And so for us, we're a freemium subscription model, but we're also, um, we're doing an NFT membership pass. Mm -hmm. as kind of a modern media oh, cool. subscription where um, we're focusing crypto, because I think that's going to be our audience at, at first. It, it has been so far, um, can have, uh, can get a, a past our, our discord and a lot of the stuff happening behind the scenes where we can show edit cuts, where we can invite people to events. Um, you know, we can put people on the editorial calls so we can, they can see what we're doing. And, and there's this idea of ownership and folks can own, um, you know, ha can enjoy our upside when we succeed. And we're going to put half of that into um, a DAO and build out a media DAO where we're going to fund different projects oh, cool. and yeah. collect, get IP. So I'm super excited about it. It's keeping me busy. It feels like this was the reason I wanted to launch this. Um, and it's very different than it was a year ago. But I mean, having covered founders my whole career, it's like, well, I'm just living out the founder story, you know, not yeah. sleeping, stressed you, all the time. You know, yeah, you know exactly what to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's super stressful, but I love it, you know. So how do people learn more about dot, dot, dot? 
Well, um, I would I would suggest you could go to our website. It's dot 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 media dot com. But honestly, I, I would really push people um, to to follow D three. It's um, at D three underscore network on uh, where we are. We have a site. Um, that people can go to that talks about our principles. We have um, all of our, all of our videos up, and um, we're and we're just beginning. And you can sign up, and we can um, on our site, and you know we'll be in touch about a lot of the stuff we're working on. So it's super exciting. Very cool. And how do people follow you generally? Uh, it's at Lori Siegel. So um, that it's a it's at L A U R I E S E G A L L. So. Yeah. There we go. All right. Uh, everyone should definitely read this book, Special Characters, My Adventures with Tech Titans and Misfits. Uh, Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.